This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Greg, what do you like to do when you're outside? Like, are you, are you an outdoorsy kind of guy? I am an outdoorsy kind of guy. What do you Especially do? when the sun's out. When I get to come over to um, California, California and the sun's out, I'm just like, yes. <laughs> Taking a break from the anemic English sun. How dare you? <laughs> It's true though. Bit of snow today over in the UK. Oh Jesus. Yeah. 70 degrees here. Absolutely gorgeous. What do I like to do? Uh, go for a run, jump on a bike, go for a bike, go for a surf. Not very good at it. I'm impressed. I can turn one way, but not the other way. <laughs> it still counts. It still counts. You're more of a surfer than I am. Okay, well say say you're biking. Mm-hmm. You fall off, you uh, scratch your knee and uh, it hurts, but you don't think much of it. Except the next few days, it just sort of gets redder and redder and more and more painful and it's swelling and it's oozing some pus. I don't like this story. And uh, maybe a few more days later... My leg drops off. You've died of sepsis. (laughs) Come on, I was joking. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is the 1920s and it's before the development of antibiotics. My bike would be very different. (laughs) Can it be a penny farthing? Oh, yes. Yes. 1910s? Oh, yeah. That's quite a height to fall from. That's full retro. That's like proper hipster. Sorry, carry on. But first, you're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. Oh, yeah, that bit. (laughs) This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant, see what we did there with the title, discoveries or ideas or indeed people. I am Greg Foote. And I'm Maren Hunsberger. And for this episode... I am the storyteller, which means that Greg knows nothing about it. Well, it's about knees, <laughs> and bikes, bikes, and injuries, and sepsis. I'm just guessing what it could just be. Just you wait, my friend. So, this is the story of what is arguably one of the most important scientific advancements in all of human history. That's my argument here. Chocolate making. No. So, but Couldn't Greg, without it, though, could you? <laughs> Compared to, say, penicillin, I'm thinking (laughs) maybe a little more essential. Yeah, fair. Yeah. So if I say penicillin, is there a name that immediately pops into your head? Fleming. Yes, exactly. Ding, 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 ding. But it turns out Fleming is just the beginning of the story and there's so much more to it. So to help us paint the picture of how this all goes down, I talked to Maria Lobanovska and she is a microbiology postdoctoral researcher at the Dunn School of Pathology at the University of Oxford. I'm so here for this. Great topic. It all began in 1928 uh, when the uh, Alexander Fleming, who was a bacteriologist working at St. Mary's Hospital in London, noticed that one of the agar plates that we use in the lab to grow bacteria had mold growing in it. So what was particularly interesting that around this mold, there was a zone in which bacteria didn't grow. So he isolated the mold and identified it as belonging to penicillium genus. He called the active substance penicillin, and then he tried purifying the active substance. Um, However, his efforts were unsuccessful, and he abandoned that research. Right. Ah. So you wouldn't have thought that, right? You think Fleming, inventor of penicillin, and suddenly we have antibiotics. That is not how it went down. I think one of the best parts about that story, and the thing that people remember the most, is that this is accidental, right? Mm -hmm. And that story is excellent. But some people also have a problem with that designation. Was it an accident? 
And why does he abandon them? If Fleming doesn't turn penicillin into a drug, then who does? How do we get to antibiotics? This is a great hook. All will be revealed after we take a short break and hear from our sponsor. So we're going to go back to the beginning of Fleming's life because the way he gets to penicillin in the first place is actually very interesting. He's originally a Scottish man. He's born in 1881. He eventually moves to London. He graduates with distinction from medical school in 1906. And when when World War I breaks out, this is 1914, he serves in the Royal Army Medical Corps. Now, in 1914, we do know what bacteria are, right? We've recognized that bacteria are an organism. We know that they make people sick. We know that they infect wounds, but we actually don't have many ways to combat them. So the army sends a scientist to the front lines of World War I to investigate how to better treat war wounds. And his name is Sir Almroth Wright. Wow. Great, great name. Almroth. Almroth. Can we you could imagine? collect all the names we use in we this actually podcast. We should. Wouldn't that be That's awesome? so good. Maybe we should make a poster. That'd be genius. Almroth Wright. Almroth Wright. And he brings Fleming with him into this makeshift lab on the top floor of what used to be a casino in Boulogne, France. And this is where they're doing all of this research into keeping wounds uh, uninfected because the best thing we have at the time to treat uh, a war wound are what are just generally called antiseptic solutions. And that's stuff like iodine, boric acid, sodium hypochlorate, which are about as delightful as they sound because they're very effective at killing bacteria, like upon immediate contact, but they don't have a long lasting effect. So you have to keep putting that stuff on an open wound. I remember iodine. Yes. Um, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's coloured, right? It's like purple. Yeah, yeah. It's purple or orange. And you put it on a place like before you're about to make an incision or um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes maybe before somebody sticks you with a needle. And that's because it has an immediate effect and you don't need it for very long, mm-hmm. right? But say, you know, you're a soldier. You've just gotten something amputated, right? You can't keep bathing that in boric acid or iodine. Just, just here's, a, here's, a, here's a bucket. Just keep dipping it in just there. Put it in there because the problem is, even if it if it's killing the bacteria, it's also actually preventing your healthy tissue from forming or scar tissue from forming. It's preventing tissue from knitting back together, and it's actually um, doing a number on your immune system in the localized area of that wound too. So it may actually, in the long term, make you more susceptible to an infection because your body's own immune system in that area Gosh. is being messed up. So. Suffice to say, not a great solution. <laughs> but better than sepsis. Uh, well, debatable. And here's the problem. It's like your choices are, do you want an infected wound or a wound that won't heal properly? Take your pick. You know, it's like the best we have is dunk it in ouchie juice and hope for the best. So we're looking for a solution. <laughs> She's a, uh, a biomedical scientist, everybody. A scientist. There you go. It's a technical term. Ouchie juice. So Kevin Brown, I also spoke to. He's a historian and an archivist who specializes in this area of history surrounding Fleming and antibiotics. And he has this to say about the methods available at the time. First World War, lots of people were wounded, acquired an infected wound, dust, gangrene, amputation. The medical world was a very different place. It wasn't possible for surgeons to do the complex work they can do today. Now that there is some way of checking infection, 
So Fleming, World War One, it's the 19 teens, and he's tending to the wounded during this war. He's basically watching his compatriots die all around him and not from direct artillery fire, but from infected wounds. And in fact, most war historians agree that in wars prior to the 1940s, and that includes World War One, the most common causes of death were complications of wounds through infection and other infectious diseases like tetanus, influenza. Etc. So one could say Fleming is quite motivated to find a solution to this problem. And in 1915, he's still serving in the Royal Army Corps. He publishes a whole paper about all of the different kinds of bacteria that exist in war wounds and how they survive in wounds despite being treated by antiseptic solutions. How's he working out what those different types of bacteria are. are they kind of like awesome experiments? Uh, microscopes? They do culture. They look under microscopes. Yeah. So you grow them in a Petri dish mm. and look and see what they look like. And actually, I've, I've sent you a picture. What right. an exciting image you've sent me. There, I know. There I was hoping it was going to be this like... A piece of paper. Like this like um, encyclopedia of bacteria, which is a great name. Um, no, it's an old looking bit of paper. It says, On the Bacteriology of Septic Wounds. It's a delightful title. But by look, Alexandra Fleming. Yeah. Up at the top, I love the the little script there. He's written on it personally, and it says... With the author's compliments? Yes! (laughs) Exclamation point. Makes me really happy. I just think he's... I'm a big Fleming fan, (laughs) and I think, number one, it's amazing. He's like serving on the front lines of World War One, and he takes the time to write this paper. So you can kind of see how passionate he is about solving this problem and also just how big a problem it is. Well, that's amazing. You said that the biggest cause of death in World War One, would you say the complications of wounds mm-hmm. getting infected and other and infectious diseases? Exactly. Wow, yeah. And and that's true for, for wars throughout history, like World War One and previous. So many more people are likely to die, not from the war itself, but just from getting an infected wound. Like we were saying, you, Greg, fall off your bike in the 1920s, you could die from that wound. I have an important question. I'm ready. They had a lab above a casino. Yeah. And I know what nerds are like. <laughs> Did they basically work out a loophole and rinse that casino? Well, here's the thing. It's World War One. It's a bombed out casino in, oh. in Boulogne. <laughs> I want them to do a movie where they... 50% time research, 50% time poker. I mean, who knows? God knows what they were getting up to. Poor, poor lads needed. A... I interrupted. Do you want to see a movie? I want to see a movie where they uh, start. They start Fleming's story in that setting, and it's just it's like oh, James Bond, World yeah. War One, you know, like Casino Royale, but make it grungy nineteen fourteen, and also a microbiology lab. Yeah, love. I'm invested. Anyway, so he manages to survive World War One, which is kind of miraculous in its own right. And he comes back from this war and continues this research in bacteriology because he is obviously very invested. He's super passionate about this. And in 1922, he performs what I think is possibly one of my favorite experiments of all time. He gets a cold. And what do you get when you get a cold, Greg? Well, it's man flu. So it's it's literally the end <laughs> of the complain. world. You <laughs> complain. Uh, what do you get? Yeah. How do you feel when you have a cold? Oh, I was going to say, how do you treat it? My dad used to swear by uh, an orange and a glass of port. I was going to say <laughs> shot of whiskey. <laughs> Sounds yeah. right. Um, what do you get? Like the sniffles? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nose, sore throat, runny exactly. nose, sore throat. Runny nose. So Fleming sees his snotty nose as an excellent lab resource. Oh, yes. And he takes a Petri dish where he's already cu- cultivating some bacteria on some agar in a Petri dish. And he... Agar. Uh, excuse me, agar. He harvests, quote unquote, some of his quote unquote nasopharyngeal mucus 
<laughs> snot and Love. puts it in this petri dish. Naso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, n- never call it snot again, my friend. Only nasopharyngeal mucus from here on out. And he puts it in this petri dish where he's growing these bacteria. I mean, that's true scientific spirit. I mean, that is a man after my own heart. It's like, eh, let's see what happens. Yeah. I just want to know. And according to his compatriots, and this is, of course, uh, some hearsay, he's also not really known for his lab organizational skills. So he leaves this Petri dish out on a lab bench for several weeks. Imagine if penicillin was actually <laughs> nasopharyngeal mucus. Well, guess what? He comes back to this Petri dish that's just been chilling on a lab bench at room temperature for weeks. And obviously the bacteria he was cultivating in it have grown, except where he put his snot. What? Not what you would think, right? So the answer to that... Snot as antibacterial properties? Yes! Ding, 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 ding! What? <laughs> it's not what you would think. And so so technically... All right, all right. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm too excited. He investigates further. He isolates this active compound. And it turns out to be something called lysozyme, which is an enzyme that your body produces naturally. It's an enzyme that has mild antibacterial properties. So technically, lysozyme is the first antibiotic ever discovered. But we never hear about it because... No, snot is the first (laughs) antibiotic discovered. Because it actually turns out to not be that useful. It's a great story. It's really exciting. But you can't make drugs that are widely active against a lot of different kinds of bacteria from it. It's very difficult, difficult to scale up. It's pretty mild and it's not very active against the stuff that really does a number on infected wounds per se. It's like keeps in check the microbiota of your nose, you know? So it's not, it doesn't turn out to be that useful, but it lays the groundwork for another influential accident. But we will get into that right after we hear this quick message. So we're back. It's the 1920s. Fleming, again, not the most organized of scientists. He kind of just has a habit of leaving Petri dishes full of bacteria out at room temperature on his lab bench. And one summer, it's dishes full of a kind of staphylococcus bacteria. That's what we might commonly refer to as staph. I'm sure you've heard, heard of, of that. that yeah. yeah, It's super common all over our bodies. There are lots of different kinds, but it can, in some circumstances, cause things like boils. Sometimes it's what's behind a sore throat. It can cause abscesses. Fun. It causes abs. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> some staphylococcus six-pack. I wish. So that's yummy, but it's a, it's a matter of debate as to whether or not this is because he legitimately just forgot about them, or if he was the kind of guy who was like, eh, let's see what happens. I don't know. I'm almost done with these Petri dishes. I want to see how they go for six weeks at room temperature. It's it's a matter of debate. People leave that up in the air. What do you, what do you think as a microbiologist? That's a do great you think question. that he, if you had to be a betting person, would you say, <laughs> oh no, I actually think he was just, he just, it was a mess. I think Fleming is a smart dude. I think, you know, from what I've read about him and all of the effort he puts into this and how passionate he is about finding out something that will you've be You've got to be effective. meticulous. Like even if you're messy, you've got to, as a scientist, yeah. you've got to have clear like number things, you know, records of when they went out, la la la. Definitely. I think historically Historically, like scientists, the scientific method really develops its fastidiousness as we get closer to the modern age. So I think in the past, maybe people were a little more lax. But Fleming as a person strikes me as the kind of guy who's so passionate about finding a solution to this that he's going to think outside the box. And so instead of just like culturing his bacterium, looking at his bacterium and then disposing of his Petri dish, I think he's the kind of guy who would be like, well, 
we haven't tried just leaving it out. On the flip side, could there be a danger of like airborne? You know, if you just leave these things out, could could just drafts or whatever, pick up some spores or something and spread it into another dish. And then you just don't know what the heck's happening. It's not good lab practice, but this is definitely behind what comes next in the story. And Kevin has something interesting to say about it. Well, on this occasion, he was on holiday for six weeks, which can't be bad at all. (laughs) And he came back to work on Monday, the 3rd of September, 1928. He was chatting with a colleague as he checked his Petri dishes for one last time, just in case something unusual might have happened. On this occasion, something did catch his attention, and he commented to his colleague, hmm, that's funny. Now, what Fleming had seen was that one of the Petri dishes had become contaminated by a fungus. He wasn't interested in the fungus. Contamination like that happened all the time. What interested him was that there were no bacteria close to the fungus. Is the fungus the penicillin then? Because I've always wondered what penicillin actually is. Well, that's a great question. So the fungus itself is, is a kind of fungus called penicillium, and it produces a substance that Fleming then calls penicillin. Oh, yeah, because Maria Mm -hmm. kind of talked Mm -hmm. about that a little bit. But I was like, what actually is it? Exactly. So the penicillium fungus produces, it excretes this substance that is an antibiotic. It is a direct reaction to bacteria being present. So the fungus can sense any any of those little signal molecules that bacteria are putting out. And it goes, ah, warning, bacteria in the area. We don't want them to get on us because that'll mess with our function. And so it starts to send out these little prickly... Uh, molecules that poke holes basically in a bacterial cell wall. So the bacterial cell just like splooges everywhere and can't survive. So he he isolates the fungus and then he he realizes that it's not the fungus itself. It's the thing it's excreting or secreting, however you want to say it. And he calls this mold juice, by the way, which is glorious. And there's actually a whole lot more random circumstance at play here than just Fleming leaving his Petri dishes out because... And this gets back to what your question earlier. The Petri dish has to be left uncovered so that the fungus can establish a colony in the first place. It just so happens that it was able to establish a colony and infect that Petri dish because it had been left near a window that was being opened and closed, which is probably where the fungus came in. And it's this, as Kevin mentioned, is during Fleming's freaking six week summer vacation at the end of July. And it should have been too hot for the fungus to survive at this point in London in August. And it just so happens that there was a cold snap. So it was the perfect temperature for this fungus to be able to grow. That's a lot of different bits of serendipity. So it's all this crazy chance. And And I'm definitely going for the side of he just leaves things out and doesn't think about it. I mean... Like, he obviously thinks scientifically, but, like, to leave the lid off the dish and to leave a window open, like, you would not know what falls in there. That's not a reproducible scientific experiment. Kevin comes to Fleming's defence on this line of thinking. So there's lots of elements of chance there, but the important thing really is Fleming had a prepared mind and he knew what to do. He saw something unusual others might have missed. He had the knowledge, he had the skills as a bacteriologist, and also he was observant and asked questions about what he saw and fitted in with un- it in with other work he was doing. So, chance, but more than chance. Yeah, that's fair. 
So, so you know, it was a whole load of different uh, factors that led to that thing happening, that, that mould, that fungus dropping in, and blah, blah, blah. But you've got to notice it, one. You've then got to deduce from that what it could be, two. And then you've got to actually investigate what that could be to get to the point of being, that's the mould juice, this is what it does. Exactly. I actually think this is a really great, I mean, extreme example, but a really great example of what science really is. It's a lot of accidents, a lot of things that were like, oh, that happened because I forgot this thing. And then you have to know as a scientist what to do with that mm-hmm. and how to then ask another question that's going to make that result useful. And then how to turn it into a scientific paper that's reproducible by others. Exactly. So so Fleming does realise the possibilities here. I mean, he sees, he's been looking for this his whole career. He's gone from watching his compatriots, his friends die on the battlefield of infected wounds to being like, oh my gosh, this is something that kills bacteria. We are on to something here. But there's a problem. He publishes his findings in 1929. So he's discovered it in 1928. He publishes in 1929. And then not much happens because he finds it really difficult to isolate that substance, the penicillin that the fungus is secreting, and then purify it in significant quantities that are enough to actually create any kind of useful treatment against an infection. So he's having trouble taking that active compound and making it into something that will be active and usable in a human living thing. So that's why he eventually abandons it. Yeah, exactly. It goes 10 years. Wow. 10 years before anybody can figure out what to do with it. see the potential? Like they must have read that paper and gone, okay, I get it. Like this has real potential. Mario's going to walk us through what happens in 10 years as a little teaser because someone does figure it out. Someone does. I mean, we have antibiotics. (laughs) Yeah, we know that. Right? We have (laughs) antibiotics now. Penicillin's a thing. (laughs) You won't die of a cut hey, from Greg, your... got this massive spoiler, right? We develop <laughs> I don't antibiotics. I you know this, but if you fall off your bike today, you will not die of sepsis, probably. So someone does figure it out, and here is our microbiologist, Maria. So it wasn't until 10 years later when the Oxford team that included Flory, Heatley, and Chain made a breakthrough. Flory and his team worked at the Dunn School of Pathology at the University of Oxford, where they conducted a series of truly incredible experiments that really changed the world. Did you notice a familiar institution name in there? Oxford University. And the Dunn School of Pathology, which is where Maria is currently doing her bacteria research. I just thought that was like a crazy full circle uh, coincidence. She's she's working there right now on some of the bacterial problems of today, which I thought was beautiful. So... Why did we come back to penicillin after giving up on it in the 20s? And what was going on in between? One of the reasons that people didn't pursue penicillin as hard as they could have right after Fleming discovers it is because something else comes onto the scene that sort of acts as a stopgap measure that is effective against bacterial infection. It's discovered in 1935 and it's called sulfonilamide. Easy for you to say. Sulfonilamide. (laughs) It's a chemical, it's a synthetic chemical that someone isolated from an oil-based dye. And not only was it discovered, but crucially, it was then altered into an effective treatment. And it's actually the first synthetic antibacterial drug. Hmm. So it's not the first antibiotic because antibiotics can only be created by living things. Oh, is that in their definition? Exactly. Okay. But this 
this, uh, what we call sulfa drugs, is developed into one drug and then a whole suite of drugs, which were used as first-line treatments for bacterial infection starting in the 1930s. And they're actually still used today for very specific kinds of infections, but within a few years of their development, bacteria start developing resistance mechanisms. So the discovery of sulfa drugs changes the mindset of a lot of people because a lot of scientists in the field are feeling very discouraged at this point in time. They're thinking, oh God, we're never going to find anything that's going to be effective against bacterial infections. And they're feeling very put down by the fact that penicillin wasn't able to be formulated into something useful. And then sulfa drugs come along and they're like, no, it can be done. We're going to find it. So a team at the Dunn School in Oxford composed of Ernst Chain, Howard Florey, and Norman Heatley, so three dudes, they pull out an old sample of Fleming's penicillium fungus and they start to conduct those experiments that Maria mentioned. They successfully isolate and purify the bacteria-killing compound, which is what Fleming failed to do, and they start seeing what it can do in an infected organism. So one of the early experiments that they did uh, that showed the promising therapeutic potential of penicillin was done in mice. So eight mice were infected with virulent streptococci. This is a bacterium that causes pneumonia, skin infection, and sepsis. So four mice were treated with penicillin, and four mice served as a control, so they didn't receive any treatment. Twelve hours after infection, all control mice died, and mice receiving penicillin survived. That was incredible. Just imagine being there in the lab, seeing these results, and realizing that here right in front of you. Yeah, I mean, that moment must be amazing. For 10 years, people have been trying to isolate and purify penicillin. They've, they've had this like, it's just been just with a, beyond reach. And then to actually see that in the lab, oh, that must be amazing. You're exactly. like, guys, we're on to a thing. And you're thinking too, I mean, antibiotics, yes, we've talked about them in the context of the war and how many people they kill, but we're looking at surgery. We're looking at every area of medicine is about to be totally revolutionized by our ability to prevent and treat infections. So the Oxford team realizes what this means. They've got to get it out of mouse models they and do. into humans' They mind. do. They publish their findings from this mouse experiment in 1940, and they continue their research and they're scaling up and they're trying to figure it out in human trials. But what else is going on in Britain in 1940, Greg? Is there is there someone in the studio who might be able to tell us a little thing or two about the UK in 1940? World War II. Uh... That's the All one. The massive bombings of London, Europe at war and beyond. Exactly. World War II. Pretty big deal. So Flory, Chain and Heatley are trying to make penicillin something that would be effective in humans. But Flory, who's the leader of this Oxford group, says a man is 3,000 times as big as a mouse. Sort of as this example of how oh no, problematic it, it is. <laughs> it's hugely problematic to try and scale up production of penicillin. And to work out the dose. Yes. I mean, that's also a problem. But the reason we mentioned World War II is because when you're trying to scale up production of a drug, you need industrial facilities. Mm. But Britain has requisitioned all of their industrial facilities to make munitions for mm. the war. Yeah. And so Britain says, hey, guys, sorry, we don't have any resources for you to use. But they're, but they're there. They're on, they're on the precipice of, of something that's going to save a lot of lives of the people who are in World War II. Exactly. They are almost there. And they're in their lab. They're using things like bedpans and bathtubs to try <sighs> and cultivate these th this enzyme, this, um, this active ingredient of penicillium fungus in large enough quantities to make something that will make a huge difference in the war. And, and do they make enough? Well, they go to the United States. They say, okay, 
we don't have the resources we need here in the UK. <laughs> I've found 3,000 baths, <laughs> uh, but it's just not cutting it. Just enough bathtubs to make penicillin for five men. No one gets to wash. <laughs> so they go to the US, who at the time in 1940 is not actually part of World War II yet. The U.S. doesn't join World War II until 1941 after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Ah. So the U.S. Is, still has resources galore for them to use. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. Flory and Heatley make their way over to a research lab in Illinois. And they're worried that if they bring a sample of the fungus over in like a little vial or some kind of container, it could be really easily stolen or lost. And so what they do instead is they smear the fungus on their jackets no. and wear the jackets over on the journey to <gasps> the U.S. and then take a sample from the jacket and then cultivate the fungus from there. Wow. Isn't that insane? Penicillin... Parker. Yes, exactly. So they've made it all the way to the U.S. with this fungus smeared on their jackets. But actually, even the U.S. won't give them enough resources to ramp up production enough to make penicillin for a whole army until the U.S. joins the war in 1941. And now they're invested. So there are scientists in the U.S. who are really invested in this as well from a scientific perspective. Yeah. But it's not until the U.S. joins the war and the military gets involved and is like, we need penicillin as a war resource that they get the money and the facilities to make penicillin in industrial quantities. So that's how, how we get there. So the U.S. team, the Oxford team, they're working together to do some crazy, amazing science to produce huge amounts of penicillin. And by 1944, sufficient penicillin was available to treat soldiers. Flory Chain and Fleming received a Nobel Prize in 1945, and this year we are celebrating 75th anniversary of the Nobel Prize in Medicine for penicillin. And I guess this discovery of penicillin is an example of how one of the greatest discoveries of all time happened as a result of a collaborative research, curiosity, technical innovation, and the ability of Oxford team to bring penicillin to mass production level. This has changed the course of the war, undoubtedly, and gave us this wonder drug that saved millions of lives. And it was a real turning point, as this was when the real antibiotic era began. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's absolutely groundbreaking, paradigm-shifting, huge, totally, the introduction of antibiotics. It totally changes the world. But I love, I love, love, love that what you've done is you've said... It's, it wasn't Fleming. Like, okay, he was the first one to look at it, but he failed in that isolation and purification of it. And that actually it then took years, a decade for it to be turned in, you know, into a thing. But then that wasn't enough of a thing to supply the people that needed the thing. So then you had to then have this cross-Atlantic collaboration. Exactly. It's such an interesting story. Exactly. So we end up with this, it's actually this huge cross-decadal, cross-generational team, international team who is responsible for getting us to the place we are today with functional antibiotics. And there's actually a reason that Fleming is the one who popped into your head. There is a media campaign that was conducted. And this is hilarious. In 1942, Fleming has a friend who is unfortunately dying of a bacterial infection. And Fleming, this is way after that Fleming discovered uh, penicillin in 1928-ish. So he writes to Flory, the director of the Oxford group, and says, hey man, can you send me some penicillin? Because they're the ones who have actually isolated it and turned it into a drug that can be used. So Flory sends penicillin to Fleming. Fleming 
is the one who administers the penicillin to his friend and the friend gets better. The friend survives. <laughs> and the Times newspaper reports this story and reports that Fleming administered penicillin to a man who survived. No way. Yes. And Fleming and his lab leader are like real gung-ho about talking to the press. They're really into it. They give interviews. They're really stoked about it. And it's not that they were trying to necessarily take credit away from the Oxford group, Flory and his team, but Fleming was just way more willing to talk to the press. And Flory was not. And it's it's kind of hilarious because I think it's pretty apt to the current scientific climate too, like who gets media coverage and who doesn't. It's all about who has media training, who wants to talk to the press, who feels comfy with newspapers. And there are people who do and people who don't. But Flory also has a very good reason for not wanting to talk to the press. And that is because going back to Heatley's, let's smear the penicillin fungus on our jacket scheme. It's because who gets access to penicillin is a huge part of who wins the war. Mm. It's a war resource. Penicillin is a weapon in World War II. Our greatest weapon. One might say. So the long-term wound casualties in the Second World War were about a third of those in the First World War. Penicillin meant that you had a means of fighting against wound infection so you could prevent gas gangrene and the loss of limbs. And that was a great advance on the First World War. So World War II represents this gigantic leap in pe- ability of soldiers to survive their wounds from any previous war, especially World War I. We say we see way fewer men coming home disfigured, coming home uh, with amputated limbs because we don't have to amputate as much anymore because we're catching infection before it spreads and kills your whole arm or whatever it may be. Uh, but Kevin also is, is quick to point out that antibiotics, yes, huge improvement and make possibly the biggest difference. But World War II is also when we actually figure out effective blood transfusion. Not as many people are dying on the battlefield, uh, bleeding out from their wounds. So it's a couple of different things together, advances in lots of different modern medicine, antibiotics potentially foremost among them. Right. So right now, uh, England and America have access to penicillin. And the other allies, because we're sharing resources with, with all of the allies. But I'm guessing Germany doesn't. Well, this is a great question. Or do they get get wind of it and find a sample well, and work it out? Well, freaking Fleming, before World War II breaks out, he's sent, in his effort to try and figure out how to make penicillium fungus useful, has sent samples of penicillium fungus all over Europe saying, hey, this excretes an antibiotic, who can figure it out? So the mm. Netherlands has it, Switzerland has it, and places that Germany invades have samples of this and they're working on their own development of antibiotics. But they've had that for that whole decade they period have. as well. Exactly, and nobody been able to figure it out. But Germany is working behind the scenes during World War II to try and get those labs to produce a penicillin. And they do, in fact, produce effective penicillin, but they never figure out how to scale it up to get oh. amounts that are big enough to serve the whole army. So you have the German equivalent of your chain and your Heatley and your, what was his name, Flory? Yeah, exactly. Uh, who managed to crack it and managed mm-hmm. to work out how to isolate and purify it, which Fleming couldn't do. But then they don't have the might of a whole industrial, probably because they're at war. And they don't have the US on their side, mm. one might argue. <laughs> they don't have these large, huge, scale industrial facilities and the support of the U.S. military to make this into something that can be served to the whole army. So instead, they have to rely on those sulfur drugs that I talked about, right, back in 1930. Problem is, they're not as effective, number one. Bacteria develop resistance to them, number two. And sulfur drugs are much more toxic. They have more toxic side effects. So they do have an antibiotic solution, but it's not great. And there aren't very hard data or stats on how many more of the Axis forces die of infected wounds, but many 
people argue that the access to penicillin does have a, a large sway uh, in in the outcome of the war. There was enough penicillin um, on D-Day at the Battle of the Bulge that every man who was injured on the battlefield in that conflict and who then got treated by a medic had access to penicillin. It would be so interesting to look at this. Like, obviously, they have incredible supply lines that they have to protect, almost as tributaries or as like the arteries to all the points of the war anyway. But one of those massive ones has to be not just food and water, but supply of mm-hmm. penicillin. And you, you want to work work really hard to make sure that that stuff doesn't get into the hands of your enemy because it could change the tide of the war. This is an interesting side fact. One person on the Axis side who we do know took penicillin and benefited from it was Hitler. His personal doctor administered penicillin to him several times, including after one particularly drastic assassination attempt. So... Penicillin may have helped the Allies win the war, but it also probably saved Hitler's life. Pros and cons. But I'm assuming that comes from uh, the small team in Germany that's able to make a small amount, but not like enough for all of their... Yeah, there's limited, limited, limited quantities of penicillin on the So that that very small amount goes to the privilege that can have it. Yeah, exactly. And while it's easy to think about the effects of antibiotics on the war, and therefore on the course of history, one might argue, it's also important to think that antibiotics at the same time are also transforming medicine in every way you could possibly imagine. So all basic surgeries, organ transplant, even novel cancer immunotherapy, all these things are impossible without antibiotics. Without antibiotics, for example, if we take cancer immunotherapy or um, any therapy that requires immunosuppression, um, it could eventually lead to, uh, because the immune system is suppressed, so it's very easy for bacterial infection to Uh, manifest itself and develop. Therefore, antibiotics are essential for any surgery, starting from minor surgery or any therapy that people undergo. And we don't even think about um, because otherwise it would be extremely dangerous to do this, all these things if we didn't have antibiotics. In fact, you know, even a scratch or, or a small wound would be fatal if we didn't have antibiotics. So I think the way we usually think of antibiotics as something that take when we have infectious bacterial diseases, the use of antibiotics stands way beyond bacterial infections. So what she's referring to there, she she mentions briefly um, cancer immunotherapies. And my partner recently had to undergo some pretty intensive chemotherapy treatment. And chemotherapy, there are lots of different kinds, but often it suppresses your immune system. So your white blood cell count gets super low and your body can't fight off infection. So bacteria in the environment that would never make us sick, you and me, healthy people with normal immune systems, can be really dangerous to anybody who's on any kind of immunosuppressive drug. And that can be someone with cancer, someone with an autoimmune disorder, something like that. So antibiotics have made an incredible difference for people uh, for cancer survivorship, for organ transplant survivorship. Are they therefore taken almost as a preventative alongside your treatment? Exactly. Yeah. You're on a course of IV antibiotics pretty much constantly. And talking about the obvious benefits, but when did it start? Well, you you said earlier when it started to lose its edge. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the first ever case of antibacterial resistance. Exactly, against sulfa drugs. And you've brought me so beautifully, Greg, to my point here, which is that if we can't imagine a world without antibiotics, we have to know how to use them wisely because we are currently sitting on the precipice of sliding back into a world 
where antibiotics are no longer effective. Are we on the precipice or do you think that we are actually, we have started sliding? I think we've started sliding personally. I mean, we've seen some pretty alarming rates of rise in antibiotic resistant gonorrhea. Gonorrhea, that lovely STI, is one of the diseases that is almost completely antibiotic resistant now. We have maybe a couple of last line of defense courses of treatment for gonorrhea. And then once those fail, once once gonorrhea develops resistance to those, we no longer have a treatment for gonorrhea. We're seeing that with diseases like meningitis, bacterial tuberculosis. We're seeing this with a lot of diseases worldwide. And the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in America, has something really beautiful, I think, to say about the discovery of antibiotics and its relationship to this era that we're living in now. And they say, the unusual serendipity involved in the discovery of penicillin demonstrates the difficulties in finding new antibiotics and should remind health professionals to expertly manage these extraordinary medicines. Naively, how difficult actually is it to to focus down, laser focus down on what we need to develop? Is it just a case that we don't have currently have it, but we could develop it? But that quote, therefore, shows you the number of factors and the amount of knowledge, the amount of process that is required to develop and test exactly. and manufacture these if we lose our most powerful tool, mm-hmm. we've got to redesign a whole new tool. Completely. Exactly. So I think that the case of penicillin is a perfect illustration of how hard it is and how long it takes. And after penicillin is discovered and developed and isolated and industrialized, we develop a whole, develop and discover a whole suite of penicillin drugs. Methicillin is one of them. You've probably heard it. It's the M in MRSA which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. MRSA is, a, is an antibiotic-resistant infection of Staph aureus. Uh, we've developed uh, all kinds of antibiotics uh, that we've, we've sort of stolen from nature, from things like fungi that produce these naturally. But we're ending that era of discovery. Like we, it's, it's difficult to discover new ones. And lots of fellow microbiologists that I've talked to mention this issue of pharmaceutical development as well, is that antibiotics are cheap. So they're not very profitable. They don't make a lot of money. And so some scientists have pointed out that the scientific community is actually not that motivated to look for new ones because no one will pay them to. And now that is that isn't to say that there aren't other solutions being worked on. They absolutely are because antibiotic resistance is this huge threat that we're facing. We're looking at viral, we're looking at viral modes of defense like um, bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect and and destroy bacteria. We're looking at bacterial vaccines. So there's lots of really exciting stuff on the horizon, but nothing like this age of antibiotic development. That's why we need the likes of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and others, right, that can fund the big cost of the development of Just these sorts of things. Just for the good of the world and yeah. not for the profit. Yeah, because, because those are the drugs we need, yep. right? Don't be driven by the ones that are going to make you the mis- most profit. <laughs> be driven by the, the human need to save lives and extend lives. Yep, exactly. We've actually known that antibiotics have a chink in their armor for a really long time because as early as 1945, Fleming is giving an interview with the New York Times where he warns that misuse and and overuse of antibiotics will lead to antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria. So we've seen this coming for a long time and we are developing 
innovative solutions, we're getting there. But when we're staring down the barrel of looking at dying from a small cut again, it's really important to remember that we need to work on our public health campaigns for proper use of antibiotics. There are some places in the world where you can buy antibiotics over the counter, right? So they don't have to be prescribed by a doctor. So sometimes people go in and they get antibiotics for what is actually the flu, which is a virus, right? So that's a big problem. Anytime you get prescribed antibiotics, you have to finish the course. Great work, Greg. And Mario says, avoid infection in the first place is also... (laughs) I mean, mean, that'd be great. (laughs) An important thing to do. (laughs) Hey, don't get infected. And while we're there, also, just never catch a cold. Never fall off your bike. I mean, why did you fall off your bike? Exactly. Being careless. Yeah, being careful and being preventative, uh, you know, is obviously... Always step number one. Kind of useful. Exactly. So public, public health innovation, highly necessary. I love the idea of viruses that attack the bacteria. So cool, Greg. Is this quite a new thing? Eh, debatable. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to say if anything's a new thing. <laughs> if we're learning one thing on this podcast, you can always track it back a couple of extra levels. been around forever. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's evidence that people were looking into bacteriophages way back when viruses were first discovered as a thing. But I think that's a topic for a whole nother podcast yeah, episode. Fair. I've really enjoyed it because I would have always have said Fleming was like the right. father, as they say, of and antibiotics. There's so much more. There's so much more to, to it. it. Yeah. Thanks for listening, Greg. I could talk about antibiotics all day long. <laughs> if you want to learn even more about all of this amazing stuff, then check out Mario's paper on the subject and Kevin's book, The Penicillin Man. You're giving them homework. <laughs> Listen, curious people, inquiring minds want to know. Those resources will be in the podcast description, along with all of the sources that I used to write this episode. Please do rate and review the show. Um, As we always say, it really genuinely does help it grow, as does telling your buddies as well. More episodes coming soon, we hope. So subscribe to catch them. And if you've got a story from science history that you would like us to tell, or a discovery or an invention that you want to know the story behind it, email us, brilliant at seeker.com. That is brilliant at seeker.com. We would love to hear from you. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker and iHeartRadio. And today's episode was researched, written and produced by yours truly. That's me, Marin Hunsberger. I'm at Marin B on Instagram, Marin Beatrice on Twitter and Marin Hunsberger on YouTube. I really didn't have to do anything today. I just got to sit here and have a wonderful story told at me. Uh, But my name, hey, is Greg Foote. Uh, I'm just at Greg Foote on Twitter and Instagram. Rolling on with the credits. Our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Our studio engineer was Ariella Markowitz. Our supervising producer was David Zwick. And our executive producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner and Mangesh Hatikuda. Finally, another huge thanks to our amazing guest experts, Maria Lobanovska and Kevin Brown. And thank you guys so much for listening. Yeah, we'll be back very soon. And it's my turn to bring the story. Bye. Bye. <laughs>